The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guests on Off the Shelf are Tim Cook. Tim is the Executive Director of the Center for Procurement Advocacy, and Tom Sisti, who is counsel to the Center for Procurement Advocacy and also counsel to the Coalition for Government Procurement. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It's good to be here. Great to see you, Roger. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation. And uh, today is all things, I guess, Capitol Hill, maybe a little bit of, you know, just where we are, big picture. We're going to talk about the NDAA, some of the key procurement or interesting com- procurement provisions in it, or how it's going to impact the you know the department procurement in general and the defense industrial base. But first, let's uh, you know here we are. The clock is ticking towards the end of the fiscal year. Gee, it seemed like things were going to be okay a little while ago. Now I guess there's a little like you know I guess uh, curves in the road. I'd say curves for now. Um, so so where are we? Tim, Tom, with regard to, um, you know, the end of the fiscal year and, you know, funding and continuing resolutions and all that stuff. Thanks, Roger. I, I, uh, the main focus is the continuing resolution. Of course, you need one of those on October 1st to keep the government running if you haven't passed the appropriations bills and they haven't been passed for fiscal year 24, which begins on the 1st of October. So everyone knows you have to have a CR. The question is, what would be in the CR? Some people talk about clean CRs, and that's just basically continuing the government at its current FY23 levels, uh, a bet possibly at a percentage lower uh, until the appropriations bills can be done. But there are many disagreements about what should be in the CR or whether it should just continue government uh, into the foreseeable future, which is probably into December. And those, those issues include uh, funding for Ukraine, uh, disaster assistance, border security funding, DOD public policy issues, DOJ public policy issues, funding for the women and children uh, funds, and other issues that are concerning other agencies that uh, throughout the federal government. And so just to summarize, uh, it looks like the House will be debating whether to include these issues or not in their possible continuing resolution. But the Senate basically wants to have a clean continuing resolution uh, with the one exception that they'd like to include the Ukraine funding. And they'd like to include the Ukraine funding at $40 billion versus what was proposed by the House of $25 billion. So it's too early to tell. We have two weeks to go until <laughs> the end of the fiscal year, and we're just monitoring it closely. And we know that there'll be many fits and starts. And uh, But we hope springs eternal that the government won't shut down. But we'll talk more about that later. Uh, Tom, what's your take on uh, where things are? Well, uh, you start off by saying there are curves in the road. I'd say there are a few potholes. <laughs> okay. uh, I was yeah. trying to be optimistic, I guess. <laughs> well, half full, half empty, I guess. But the 
you know, I, I think you have to step back from it. I mean, we tend to look at it from the standpoint of procurement, of course, because of what we do. But some of these more macro issues will have an impact. I mean, I can't say how they won't. You've got, um, if you're looking at the motivations of people who want to be aggressive in dealing with debt and deficit, you've got a budget deficit that's expected to double the next uh, fiscal year from one to two trillion. And I think anyone who has a television set knows that um, the drivers of that are inflation, interest on the debt, which grew substantially over the last uh, two to three years. It's uh, the reported drop in, in tax receipts and the continuing increase in spending. So you've got that out there just for the, you know, fiscal conservatives. That's a, a, a pure driver. You've got um, just some of these, Other, uh, I think, volatile, partisan, whatever you want to call them, issues. Uh, Ukraine aid, as Tim mentioned, is is a huge, huge um, thorn for for some people. Uh, There is talk that the Speaker in the House may remove the Ukraine aid from um, the uh, budget bill. Uh, Some people think that would speed things up. But the the other part of that is uh, it would be attached to a border bill, which would uh, increase security at the border and address the uh, flow of illegal uh, migrants into the country. That's a non-starter for the leadership in the Senate. Uh, At the same time, as Ken mentioned, you have people who want more Ukraine funding uh, in the Senate than uh, is even being considered in the House. So you have a strong desire from the Republican leadership in the Senate to um, to move forward with Ukraine funding. So how this gets worked out, it remains to be seen. Some leaders in the House have uh, been very vocal, if not colorful, with their language on what they expect uh, out of the Senate uh, Republicans. At the same time, I think the um, various interest groups are weighing in. Left-leaning interest groups have written already to the leaders of both the uh, House uh, Democrat leaders of House and Senate uh, saying that they should hold the line, stick to, uh, exclusively to the debt agreement that was uh, enacted, if you will, for lack of a better word, uh, recently. On the right side, you have people saying they need to be aggressive for economic reasons, for the border reasons, et cetera. Then, you know, some of the other stuff, which, you know, I, you know, take, you need a crystal ball for. So it's I, I'm not as sanguine that um, that things are going to come together. Other people are. You know, we'll see how it plays out. So what what's the debate with regard to funding levels? Like you know the uh, the budget agreement or voter was had top line numbers. Is it the Senate wants to go to the top line numbers, but the House wants to view that as a ceiling where they can go lower? Is that one of the one of the issues? Exactly, Roger. That's that's exactly the issue. You hit it right in the head. And because of their interest in, like you said, the House marking at lower numbers and the Senate marking at approved numbers, like Tom mentioned, dealing with the uh, debt ceiling negotiation, you have appropriations bills that are going to come out at different levels, and they'll have to be reconciled before they can be passed and signed by the president. Right. And so, you know, how, how does this get resolved? Is it, 
are we going to go past the brink or is they going to punt to December? Like you, you might have alluded to Tim, what do you think? Right. Um, great question. So what I initially discussed was just this issue of the continuing resolution to the 1st of October and the government shutdown. But as I mentioned, the CR has to go to a time defined and most people believe that'll be some time defined um, in very early December. And at that point, there'd be a hope that uh, appropriations would be built passed on both sides uh, by the house and by the Senate, and that they would be going to conference and be reconciled so that they would, they could come up with a one number that could then be passed by both houses and then sent to the president. But uh, I guess it's just like a family budget. If, if you budget uh, a lot of money for a car and then uh maybe somebody else in your family has less money for that car. It's, it's hard to buy half a car. So you have to somehow get to uh, some level of funding that you can agree upon. And that means that there's going to have to be um, consideration provided by different parties and, and agreement as to what that number is. And right now that's just very difficult. And so that's why many people who are looking at this situation say, well, there might be a continuing resolution that'll keep the government open on the, around the 1st of October. But once we get to December and we have to deal with these appropriations bills, how are we ever going to get to a situation where there can be any kind of agreement? And then if there's no agreement, then they have to extend the CR or the government shuts down. You know, you get into the same situation that you would have on the 1st of October. And I'll turn that right. over to Tom for further clarification. Well, Right. And then what happens then is if, if we don't have um, our budgets in place by January 1, then per the um, debt deal, there's a 1% cut of all budgets across the board. And if they still don't have a permanent fix um, to the budget by March 31st, that cut is permanent. And for the warriors among you, you know, if you think of it as, you know, uh, floodwaters coming down a hill, you know, they, they follows the path of least resistance. You just are, there's this nagging concern in the back of your head that the path of least resistance would be to just say, well, we're not going to have a, a, anything in place and people just have the automatic reduction take place. And that's the way they secure cuts. All right. So, okay. Well, we're up on the break, guys. When we come back, we'll continue a little bit of this discussion of the budget and where it's going and, you know, some of those top line numbers, I guess. And then uh, also talk a little bit about shutdown and what it means or doesn't mean for all kinds of different folks out there. Uh, Okay. My guests today are Tim Cook. He's the executive director of the Center for Procurement Advocacy. Tom Sisti, counsel to Center for Procurement Advocacy, Coalition for Government Procurement. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Tim Cook. Tim is the Executive Director for the Center of Procurement Advocacy, and Tom Sisti, the Counsel to the Center for Procurement Advocacy and to the Coalition for Government Procurement. And we're talking about, uh, we've been talking about um, Continuing resolutions, you know, the budget deal that was uh, agreed to, uh, I guess, earlier this year, you know, what the ramifications of we're getting to the end of the fiscal year and whether or not they're going to be able to move forward and reach some sort of agreement to keep the lights on, I guess. 
And I guess, um, you know, the, the, you know, you guys laid out, um, towards the end of the last segment, like the mechanisms of what could happen, you know, likely let's say they do do a CR into December. They get to that point. There's, they remain at the, where they are now and they can't reach agreement. Then they get to January 1st. Um, and essentially then there's just, uh, their sequestration and a top line number, I guess, gets cut by 1% across the board for all agencies. Um, and then it becomes permanent, I guess, if it's on the 31st, I think, of March, uh, Tom, you said. So how could that play out just in terms of what it means for the government, how you even implement that kind of thing? Thanks, Roger. I, I think your your point is very well taken. I mean, um, government employees and now government contractors have become proficient at working under continuing resolutions because it's happened many times over the, over the decade. And, uh, but that doesn't mean that those are a good thing to operate under because a CR just continues at the level of funding from the previous fiscal year, but it also continues at a lower funding because there's concerned about spending too much. And so the reason CRs are bad for government is because in each quarter, the government is provided with a certain amount of money, which is maybe 75% of what they were spending the year before because nobody wants to go overspend in any quarter. And so that's why you typically have um, a buildup of additional funds <laughs> that once the, the CR passes, or excuse me, the appropriations bills pass, that has to be spent by the agencies. Um, what Tom described is this issue about a sequestration of the appropriations bills if they're not passed by the 1st of January. And that sequestration would occur on the 1st of April. And so it's just an additional complication for the government because they're operating at a percentage less than um, a fiscal year previous. And then they're going to have a sequestration on top of it which could be permanent, as Tom mentioned, uh, later on in the year. So we're just dealing with the issues about the government and its operations, but you can understand how this complicates things for already busy government employees and government contractors. Tom? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would argue this has been going on more than a decade. I mean, this has been going on since I was you know, young, thin, had hair and some semblance of a future. The thing is, these... Yeah, that's a long, long you know, time ago. Long time. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, it's reminiscent of, uh, if you remember that provision during COVID that allowed uh, for continuity of operations. It was language to allow agencies um, uh, to sustain uh, in ready state their contractors. Um, it's a great idea. But some agencies said, hey, um, where's the money coming from? Okay. Right, and it's right. like, okay, so are you you telling me to take it from my, my program? Because I budgeted for the program a year or two ago. We're in the middle of the program. I didn't budget for this, for these types of equitable adjustments or supplementals. So, yeah. And, and so this, this is nice to say there'll be a 1% cut. And, you know, the devil is going to be in the details where that 1% uh, come from comes from the the um, the other thing is frankly it is a bad way to run the railroad because as Tim said there are no new starts you're continuing at previous year funding levels um, you uh, 
you can't really do planning. Okay. Um, you, you can't make a, adjustments to your programs. You have to, in the, every time this comes up with either a CR or uh, with the, the, you know, the shotgun of a shutdown facing you, you have to plan. And that planning takes away resources from what? From the programs that are all already going to be cut if they can't come up with the 1%. You know, it just is kind of a chaotic way to keep your organization going. I remember when I was in government too, it was like, it costs money just to prepare for a shutdown. That's right. That's my point. (laughs) That's the point. It takes money. It takes time. And the people, so, so it's very disruptive in ways that just aren't apparent. People are looking at data and data is very important, certainly, but it's not only the data. It's, it's not like you, you can replicate yourself and then shift over to your plan because, you know, not to jump ahead, but, you know, part of the, the shutdown process is the orderly uh, organizational planning uh, for an orderly shutdown that has to take place. Right. Yeah, it's it's just interesting. So there was a shutdown. Can you talk, what, what are some of the impacts on whether it's government contractors and pl- government employees, military personnel, you know, and the public too? Well, I, I think... You have to remember that there are certain sort of threshold issues that are attendant to this. One, um, that the government can keep going and keep operating with respect to matters that affect, you know, significant human life issues, significant protection of property issues. All right. Uh, Those those uh, those activities go on. So, like, it's not like everybody puts their tank away in DOD and goes home right it's sort of um, like essential essential personnel kind of thing right essential but yeah essentially it's a essential. that's right um so you have activities um where the statute permits obligations in in advance of appropriations like certain contracting activities there are some things like that and then you have benefit programs entitlement payments those keep going um because they're they're in they anticipate that they will they they go on the beyond the budget process, if you will, that they're they're continuing to operate by their very nature, and then um, activities that are not dependent um, for day to day appropriation activities, like um, uh, the postal service. It's a self funding entity, you know. All right. So then, and then the activities uh, attendant to um, constitutional powers of the president and Congress. So the president, you know, if the president has a pardon waiting on his desk for somebody who's, who might be executed or something like that, um, it, it doesn't just go by the wayside because um, there's no funding. So it's those types of things. And like I said, outside of that, yeah, like if you're, if you're in a national park, that might shut down, you know? So what does that mean? It means that, um, by virtue of law and, and the OMB uh, directive, uh, it has to be an orderly shutdown. So each agency, and this is what we were talking about before, and uh, each agency has to identify uh, what can continue and what what can't. And they have to, so basically what will shut down, what will not shut down, uh, the time to complete the shutdown, they have to plan that out, right? Um how employees will be paid, non-appropriated employees, appropriate employees, the people who are acting on implied authority, um, and what, who 
or what is needed uh, to protect life and property. And when you get through all of that, um, then you decide who gets furloughed. Okay. Um, So where does that leave contractors? Contractors basically are in this cycle again, where they are preparing for a shutdown and predominantly focused on getting their contract signed, their work orders in, everything sort of in place because you don't know what's going to happen. All right. And how the thing's going to play out. Right. So like some of yeah, some of the things like contractors need to definitely talk to their contracting officers, understand the terms of their contract and you know, and how it's and how it's funded and what color of money it's funded with and you know, obviously take direction and prepare to minimize their costs to the extent there is a shutdown, all kinds of interesting things. Well, you know, and, and just little things. Um, and then the, the, this happens even in the face of a continuing resolution, you have to, for instance, stop, uh, slow down or stop your hiring processes. If you were going to bring people on board, you just don't know. You have to alter your travel um, arrangements uh, so, so if you're you're headed out to facilities, government facilities, or uh, any other kind of professional activities, you, you can't do it. So all of the even the shutdown, you can't do so, it, or it or it potentially is modified based on the continuing resolutions, funding right. level, and things like that. Right. Well, what I'm hey. saying is, even in the face of a continuing resolution, you do confront the same types of issues where you have to alter the way you're doing business. Right. So Tom we're, and Tim, we're up on the break. When we come back, I think let's shift a little bit and we'll start talking about, um, I know, the National Defense Authorization Act and what are some of the interesting provisions with regard to procurement in general and other things that are in there and you know what they may or may not mean moving forward. My guests today are Tim Cook. He's the Executive Director of the Center for Procurement Advocacy. And Tom Sisti is the Counsel to the Center for Procurement Advocacy and the Coalition for Government Procurement. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Tim Cook. He's the Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy. And Tom Sisti, who is the counsel to the Center for Procurement Advocacy and the Coalition for Government Procurement. And gentlemen, uh, this segment, we're going to turn from, you know, continuing resolutions, budgets, CR, you know, shutdowns and all that uh, wonderful stuff to, uh, you know, some of the, you know, the nuts and bolts of uh, how the, how the system works and what's, what the department is going to have to do or not do. And, you know, by, uh, also by relation, potentially civilian agencies or by, you know, the authority. So first of all, looking at the NDA, what is, you know, the sort of top level themes uh, in the document when you, when you're looking at, you know, title eight and all the procurement related sections and just overall, Tim. Thanks Roger. Well, as you know, every year, um, the Defense Department is reauthorized, and it's called the National Defense Authorization Act. And in that uh, must-pass legislation, there are many different um, policy provisions that affect acquisition procurement and the government writ large. And um, each year, they kind of have themes as to what they're focused on. And over the past few years, the focus really has been on what they would say threat vectors from China and other uh, nations 
additionally, uh, one of the focus is going to be has been about the protection of the defense industrial base and how can we make sure that we have the spare parts and the uh, ma- materials to continue our uh, production of our defense contracts. And there's been focus on multi-year procurement and um, and how to streamline different uh, different laws and regulations to make sure that the Department of Defense and other agencies in the federal government have what they need to continue their missions. I would say one of the interesting things that's not really covered this year is um, dealing with AI and how to deal with AI. Tom? Well, taking some of this um, and just pulling it out a little bit, pulling the threads out. Yeah, over the years, we've talked about uh, what we jokingly refer to as the crinks, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, right? Um, those, it is China, China, China. It's an increasing concern uh, about China. You have provisions uh, requiring um, notification of the Treasury Department of certain business activities in China, Russia, North Korea, Iran. Um, that includes acquiring interest or a debt obligation uh, that includes government rights. They, the regulations there would touch on um, the following sectors. It would be like artificial intelligence, semiconductors, quantum information technology, hypersonics, satellites. So, I mean, you're seeing these provisions get much more focused uh, now. GAO is called upon to do uh, a country of origin of the end items and components procured by DOD, so they um, show to the extent DOD is relying on foreign countries for their anonym components, especially those containing specialty metals not uh, produced in the U.S. There are a number of provisions in this regard talking about um, identifying how much uh, our industrial base is reliant on these specialty metals, critical materials, um, given the fact that two-thirds of the global supply of critical minerals resides in China. So there are are provisions uh, that prohibit the uh, use of funds to buy uh, battery technology from certain um, Chinese companies and prohibitions on entities doing business with the Russian government or the energy sector in Russia. Prohibitions on Chinese military companies operating in the United States. Uh, you can't, um, DOD would be prohibited from procuring goods and services from those countries. And lists are required to be set up. So I don't think, I'm just giving you a smattering here. I don't think that it can be overstated how much the concern there is for China at this uh, point. And, um, to a great extent, I think um, there's been uh, consternation in industry uh, for a long time, like over a decade, close to two, about these concerns that are expressed by the government, but they're they're expressed in halfway measures, usually in legislation. Okay, check with this list, check with that list, and industry is sort of betwixt and between. Okay, do we go, do we not go? I think the telegraph message of the last several years, and certainly in this bill, is, you know, beware. Going back to 889, remember the um, language uh, restricting Huawei and other 
telecommunications entities, their equipment uh, from government uh, contracting. I think it's just going to get worse. And I think a good signal uh, from on a macro level is to consider that last week, the China had had instituted a ban on the use of Apple products with in, in, inside government and is considering expanding that ban uh, nationwide. I mean, these are signals. Uh, to, that, to state, that, isn't it to state um, government entities? It's not like banning it out of the country completely. Not out of, not a, around the country yet, but definitely considered. It's that's being considered. Okay. Um, so is this like, uh, you know, is this the administration and Congress on the same page on these things pretty much, you know, you know, I know the idea of like fencing off these critical technologies is kind of a consistent theme, both from the administration and I think on the Hill, is this, this is a bipartisan effort, is it not? Yes, Roger. I absolutely. I agree with you. It's a bipartisan and bicameral. And as Tom mentioned, it's a complete focus on how do we continue forward and not have any reliance on these different countries where we might have had reliance on them previously. Right, especially critical you know, metals and that sort of thing. You can see that's going to be a huge challenge. So another que- I had a question I have is, uh, uh, you know, the, the Buy America um, emphasis versus Buy Allies. Does that play out in this um in this bill, is there any, you know, I mean, I think it's over the last couple of years, it's evolved from buy America to more of a buy allied approach. At least that's the themes I think that has been communicated to me in the legislation. Does this NDA reflect any of that? Well, I think we have had provisions in last year's bill that pointed us in that direction. And remember it was, um, uh, and then also looking at the reciprocity to the extent that allies were were considering the U.S., so I, I I didn't see anything as explicit as that in the bills. I think that it's an, an interesting conflict could arise um, with respect to specialty minerals and metals, because to the extent that they people are talking about prohibitions on those things, that could run headlong into the green initiatives that are calling for the use of certain green technologies because they are, um, uh, China is a big source of that. So how do you balance the two? Right. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's really about developing other sources at the end of the day. You're not yes. right. Uh, that's the only way to solve the problem. Um, so when we come back, we got to take our break right now. We'll come back. We'll continue our discussion, some of these policy issues. And, uh, you know, I think maybe we'll focus a little bit more on, what's being done to, to support the industrial base. I mean, we've talked a lot about exclusionary language around the cranks and particularly China, 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 but what are some of the things that, you know, the, 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 the act would look to try to support the industrial base. My guests today are Tim Cook. He's the executive director of the center for procurement advocacy and Tom Sisti. He is the counsel to the center for procurement advocacy and the coalition for government procurement. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Tim Cook. He's executive director for the Center of Procurement Advocacy, and Tom Sisti, who is counsel to the Center for Procurement Advocacy and the Coalition for Government Procurement. And, you know, let's continue our discussion of the NDAA, and in particular, 
you know, there's some contracting provisions I think are kind of designed to support the industrial base, Tom. You want to talk a little little about what those might be or some of the interesting ones? There are a couple of provisions I think are set up to, to cause uh, some questions. I think limiting the use of funds requiring uh, to require contractors to disclose uh, greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, um, so that's runs headlong into the um, uh, far proposed rule on the disclosure of greenhouse gas emissions. So it remains to see how that's going to play out. Um, You have a temporary extension of uh, the authority to modify contracts because of inflation and to do so without um, uh, consideration uh, with respect to equity. Uh, equitable price adjustments. Um, they were setting up, uh, calling for the setup of uh, inside of DOD of a contracting authority for strategic, uh, the strategic capabilities office, um, an inventory of uh, inflation and escalation indices. Uh, you, there are just a lot of provisions, and that's sometimes it's a challenge each year when this stuff. Uh, is released because there are so many provisions that get really get into some of the arcanery of, uh, of procurement. I, I can tell you uh, there are some uh, commercial acquisition uh, provisions that might be of interest to certainly uh, a number of the listeners. Um, the uh, in, in the House bill, there's a provision that uh, would call for um, the contracting office to to uh, release upon request to uh, contractors uh, the commercial determination mem- uh, memorandum that they make that a, a procurement is commercial. Um, there's uh, the call for uh, commercial integration cells within the combat commands. Um, it would require commanders to brief uh, the committees on armed services on the feasibility of having commercial integration into these commands uh, for certain relevant uh, capabilities. Is that kind of drone technology and things like that? Are they talking about? I don't think it's technology specific. It's just, you know, what's suitable, what's not uh, for integration into those uh, commands. And then um, there's a call for a study uh, by undersecretary of defense for um, acquisition sustainment to uh, identify barrier and, and, and focus on reducing barriers to ac- the acquisition of commercial items. How many times has that been done at this point? I don't know, but it's like, it's, it's, like, our, it's like Groundhog Day on some of these things. It's like, right. like the, the, you know, the continuation of the ability to you know, mod contracts based on inflation without consideration. Right. But that, that ultimately still goes back to the issue. Is there money, you know, was, is there money program for that? It, it's, it's right. it's one of those symbolic things that you do, but at the end of the day, it's like that provision, you know, to maintain the you know contractor workforce. If agencies don't have the money to do it, they're not going to do it, right? Well, this is the thing, and as, so are they supposed to plan in inflation indices, if you will? It's just hard, and the real challenge is, you know, a consistency of of application across not only across the, the federal government, but across the services within DOD, you know, um, if practices aren't consistent, it makes it much harder to do business. Right. Um, so you have that issue. Yeah. Just on the sustainability side, you know, that provision, you can't, you know, expend any funds, I guess, to report 
you know, greenhouse gases is that that's just to DOD, right? Yes. Contract. So, so civilian agents may, the FAR rule may apply to them, but, you know, in contracts there, but not at DOD. And then you start thinking about someone like GSA, what do they do? They're going to have to like each of their contracts at the task order level, I guess, apply it or not. Right. It gets confusing there. Well, it, the, the rule, there's a lot of confusion around this because it's like when you're identifying greenhouse gases, which <laughs> at what segment are you identifying those gases? You know, there's a lot of greenhouse gas that goes into green technology. And so are we defining that? Are we including that as well? It's Are we basically doing an output analysis or an input analysis on the specific technologies that are subordinate in that discussion? You know, so that's a challenge. We got about a minute left, so was, I, I wanted to get your take on the bid protest provision. I guess there's a pilot. There's language about a pilot potentially about loser pays. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a pilot um, that would uh, call for um, establish a program um, requiring protesters to pay DOD the costs associated with a protest if GAO denies the protest. Well. You know, I mean, this has come up again. One of these multi-decade issues. It's come up. It was up. It came up in the '90s, and and uh, e- even during the FACET discussions, uh, it was like we need to do something about quote frivolous unquote uh, protests. Well, frivolous is defined, okay, uh, in federal rules of criminal procedure. Just because you lose doesn't mean the case is frivolous. Um, if it's a colorable case, it goes forward. Uh, more importantly, though, the whole protest process is, is rooted in this concept of private attorney general. It's easier to have the people most incented uh, to see a clear outcome in the procurement, the people bidding on the procurement, right, um, uh, monitor the procurement and test it, you know, in terms of, of its proper uh, function in, in, in performance, so uh, if you start doing this, what's the alternative? You're going to have an auditor for every procurement? That's crazy. It is not an efficient way to work. So when you do this and say loser pays, you're disincenting the vendors who are participating in the procurement from coming forward because it's no longer do I have a completely crazy, irrational, something I know is irrational, okay, uh, concept of law. Uh, in other words, moving towards frivolous. It's hey, I protest, but I lost, okay? Um, well, now you're, you're kind of pulling the rug out from under the process. And, it, and the question is why? You have to go back to, I mean, GAO does a tremendous job each year doing its uh, effectiveness statistics. Um, and, and, and you have to consider the number of transactions that the government engages in um, relative to the number of protests that are filed. Um, the number of course corrections that are made to procurements because protests are simply filed, simply filed. Okay. It, it just remains to be seen why there is this need for a pilot of this kind. All you're going to prove is that, okay, they, they can charge people if they lose their case. Right. You know? Yeah. We're not yeah. England, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, on that point, since we, we are not a pre- profound statement, we are not England, we have to end the show. So I want to thank my guest today, Tim Cook. He's the executive director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy, and Tom Sisti, who is the general counsel for the Center for Procurement Advocacy and the Coalition for Government Procurement. I'm Roger Walder, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. 
You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 